Well, <clears throat> good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Um, Alex admitted to make the most important statement about me is that which is that I'm his uncle. So Walter was Neville, so he had a he was surrounded by a band of uncles this evening. So each year uh, at Easter time, Christians celebrate the last week of the Lord Jesus' life on earth. Uh, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was arrested, tried, and crucified. He was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he rose again from the dead. And the story of that week, Easter week, begins with a moment when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. He deliberately arranges for a formal public procession into the city. He comes as Israel's Messiah, as their king. It was Passover time in Jerusalem, so the city was bursting at the seams, packed with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over Israel and much further afield. If the pilgrims had lifted their eyes to the Mount of Olives, they would have seen a procession coming down the slopes towards the town. It was a joyful scene. Men, women, and children were singing psalms, praising God, waving palm branches. Some led cloaks and small branches on the road. It's interesting, you know, if you think of the Christmas story. In the Christmas story, it is a choir of angels who sing, and they cry out, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. But here it is an entirely human choir who sing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in both cases, at both Christmas and Easter time, the object of worship is Jesus Christ. So let's now turn to the scriptures. And the main account we're going to examine comes from Luke's gospel. But before we get there, let's read a couple of verses from John's gospel to give us some context. So if you have the scriptures in front of you, turn to John's gospel. John sets the story of Christ's formal entry into Jerusalem within the context of a great miracle that Jesus had performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so we might reasonably expect everyone to be delighted and awed by that miracle. But the religious elite had a very negative reaction to it. So in John chapter 11, John chapter 11 and verse 47, we read these words. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, around, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then drop down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John records the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the next chapter, in chapter 12. And in verse 18 of chapter 12, we get to hear the religious elite talk together about that event. They say, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. That was the raising of Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, we are gaining, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So now let's turn to our main passage. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 19. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke 19, verses 28 to 41. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, 
Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. We pray that God will give us good understanding of his word. It is my aim tonight to try to persuade you that the issues raised by this story cut right to the heart of everything that's wrong with our own society. And I think these issues also explain the deepest problems we face in our own personal lives. So we're going to look past the waving palm branches and stare into the darkest aspects of the human condition. So tonight I hope to make three points. We'll think about God's approach to government. Then we'll consider the apparent triumph of power. And finally, we'll think about the final triumph of truth. So let's begin by asking ourselves what this passage, passage teaches us about God's approach to government. That is clearly the central idea because the delighted crowds address Jesus as king. And the religious elite are disturbed by the threat Christ poses to their own political power. But it's at this point that Luke's account takes a slightly odd turn. From verses 35 to 40, we read about the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but there are six verses before that which all deal with the Lord's mode of transportation. The figure at the very center of the procession rides a donkey. And Luke isn't content just to mention that strange fact. He goes into great detail about the exact type of donkey and, and how it was sourced. It seems likely that the Lord had made a previous arrangement with the donkey's owner to borrow the animal. But Luke is at pains to tell us, uh, and the other gospel writers tell us, that there were in fact two donkeys. A mother donkey and her coat. And the Lord is riding the coat, the foal. And for the people involved in the arrangement, that was the surprise. Verse 33, why are you untying the coat? Now, to borrow a mature donkey made perfect sense. But what use could be made of an untrained animal that no one had ever ridden before? And yet that was the exact specification given by Christ, that it must never have been ridden before. For some curious reason, he wanted to ride into Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, but on an untrained coat. When I was a child, I occasionally read Westerns, novels written by someone called Louis Lemur. Uh, and most of them had a character in it known as a horse wrangler. And a horse wrangler was an especially skilled cowboy who could break an untrained horse. 
That was the language they used to describe the process. They broke the horse. In just about every novel that I read, <clears throat> the wrangler approached some wild-eyed, suspicious horse. It snorted and bucked while the saddle was placed on its back. And then when the wrangler stepped into the saddle, the beast went completely mental, to use a technical term. It reared up on its hind legs. It bucked and rocked furiously. But the wrangler's iron grip on the bridle eventually brought the beast to heel. If it did rear up, the butt of the cowboy's whip would be brought crashing down on its head. And eventually, trembling and exhausted, the animal would accept that it had a master. It had been broken. Now, I actually know nothing about horses, and even less about donkeys. But the principle of breaking an animal, I think that explains the question raised by the owners in verse 33. Why are you untying the colt? How amazed they would have been if they could have seen their colt walk calmly and quietly down the Jericho Road, allowing this man, Jesus, to sit on its back. It was, of course, a kindness shown by the Lord to ask that the colt's mother come along as well. The little animal would have been reassured by the presence of its mother by its side. But that kindness could not explain the absence of kicking and squealing and bucking of an unbroken colt, particularly with all that noise going on around it. The crowd were looking at something almost miraculous. I read a commentary on this passage which made me slightly angry, as many of them do. Uh, <clears throat> it uh, quoted a famous cavalry officer. Jesus must have had incredibly strong hands, said the military man. I think that's nonsense myself. In fact, I think it misses the whole point of Jesus' action. As he approaches Jerusalem, a city controlled by men who idolize power, I think he's making a really deep point about the difference between divine and human government. Let's revert for a moment to those verses we read in John's Gospel. The religious elite react exactly like our own politicians when they see a threat to their power. When they despair that the whole world has gone after Jesus, they sound like our own politicians staring at an opinion poll one week before an election. We're losing our base, Mr. President. <clears throat> are you listening, Emmanuel Macron? Power is slipping away. What are we to do? If we don't do something, the religious elite said, the Romans will take away our place and our nation. Now, that reaction is really revealing. It shows who they really think governed human affairs. They never mentioned God. It's the Romans, they believe, control history. No wonder in the end, those same men say, we have no king but Caesar. Those verses in John reveal the politician's heart. Government is about power and control. How many times in history did a conquering emperor approach a city he had just taken and he's riding on the back of some white charger? Thousands of troops in gleaming armor march by his side, intimidating the defeated citizens with their spears and swords. And on every occasion, the conqueror brought the city to heel. He broke its citizens the way a horse wrangler might break an untrained horse. The brutal exercise of power eventually brought former rebels to heel. That's exactly what Putin is doing at the moment, isn't it? And the citizens of these ancient cities bowed their heads and admitted that they had a new master. Now, in your mind, contrast that military general on a white charger with the picture of the Lord Jesus on an unbroken coat of a donkey. 
Something really deep is being taught to us here. And it is a lesson that our society needs to learn more than any other society since the end of the Roman Empire. That's a big claim, so let me try and back it up. Many of you will have heard of an ideology called critical theory. One form of that concept is called critical race theory. And those who subscribe to the theory say that it, evil does not reside in the human heart. Evil is a structural flaw in the way societies are put together and in the way they're governed. And so according to critical theory, salvation is explained in terms of a revolution in government. Every society, we are told, is made up of an oppressor and then oppressed minority groups. The oppressor in our world is always a straight white male. White patriarchy is the term often used to describe the oppressor. The oppressed, on the other hand, are women, especially trans women, black people, and the wider LGBT community. So critical theory reduces all of life to a power struggle. In the end, if CT is right, there is no such thing as morality or truth. There is only power. So the whole of human existence reduces to minority groups struggling to wrestle power away from, in this case, straight white men. That is a desolate way to view life. But it is the destination of people who think like the religious rulers in John 11. If we don't do something, the Romans will take away our place. In other words, they'll take away our position and our privileges in society. I have seen a number of young Christian women have their minds poisoned by critical theory. If you're in danger of following that path, just pause for a moment and look once more at Jesus Christ sitting on the back of an unbroken coat. That simple picture is telling us something about God's approach to government. God is no tyrant. He will not break you through sheer brute power, even though he could if he wanted to. And there's a reason for that. Kingdoms built on power and control always fall apart in the end. So we must look more closely at this scene and ask, what has caused these people to sing joyfully, to be happy at the thought that they have a king who rides on the back of a donkey? I mean, it wasn't as if Jesus had bought their loyalty with promises of bread. He deliberately turned his back on that pathway in John 6. No, these people are singing psalms because they recognized in Christ the source of real moral goodness, moral worthiness. They had watched him work without eating or sleeping all day to heal people. They saw his heartfelt interest in the oppressed and the poor. And they knew intuitively that justice was morally good. So were qualities like kindness and truthfulness. And they concluded that Christ was the very source of all those beautiful moral qualities. He revealed the very heart of God. So they sang about a king who came in the name of the Lord. In other words, a king who exemplified the moral qualities they had revered throughout their history that they traced back to their God. A king who never lorded it over people looking down on them from the back of a white charger. They gave their allegiance to a king who was humble enough to ride a donkey. As they watched that little colt trot contentedly down the slope, they knew they were catching a glimpse of Eden restored, man in harmony with all of creation once again. Somewhere in its fuzzy little brain, the colt knew that this man 
meant him, meant him no harm. He could sense that carrying him was important and the right thing to do. Even the road went uphill for a little while, he kept going. And that creature has been a role model for human beings for 2,000 years. Sometimes in a flight of fancy, I imagine a conversation between a donkey and a horse. A great war horse towers over a donkey in their shared field. You are a ridiculous creature, says the horse. Your great floppy ears, that insane braying noise you make. You're a joke of a creature. My ancestors have carried kings and potentates into battle. What have you ever done? Well, the donkey says, all your kings are long forgotten. They're just dust in the rubble of history. But how many of your ancestors have been ridden by the Creator Himself? Maybe there are times you feel inferior to other people who seem to tower over you like great proud war horses. But remember the Lord once said to a slightly ridiculous looking creature, I have need of it. And it ended up playing a unique role in history. So with you, Christian. The Lord has need of you. And as people see you serve your Lord contentedly, not getting spooked, not giving rebellious kicks, they will catch a glimpse of Eden restored, a creature working in harmony with its creator. Now, anyway, I've talked about donkeys for too long. So let's look again at the crowds of delighted disciples who spread their cloaks in front of Jesus. They rejoiced because they had a king who had won their hearts. That is God's approach to government. He has raised up a king who reigns because he has won the hearts and minds of his subjects. His subjects want Christ to be their king because they have become convinced of his moral worthiness. They haven't been crushed by his power. They haven't been broken by a divine horse wrangler. They are willing subjects in a kingdom ruled by a king who has won their hearts. Now, at this point, a cynic might say, well, that's a very nice idea, Jim, but it didn't turn out too well. In less than a week, Jesus had been crucified. So surely in the end, power always wins. Well, it is very true that power apparently wins for most of the Easter story. Just trace his life. Jesus chose to be born in poverty. He lived outside of the power structures of his society. He somewhere had, sometimes had nowhere to lay his head. He chose to stand alongside the oppressed and the marginalized of society. And in the end, the religious and political elites did him to death. As we watch Christ on that donkey's back, moving slowly to Jerusalem, we see a king enter his capital city, but that city for him was enemy territory. He was entering into a system based on power and control and manipulation. And at first sight, the system won. Now, as we shall learn next week, Christ was the victim of injustice. By oppression, he was taken away, says Isaiah. And in the end, he was thrown outside the city and executed like a common criminal. Power, we might think, always wins in the end. But wait. Turn forward a few pages in your Bible, and you will hear the Apostle Paul declare the cross of Christ to be the power of God unto salvation. The Romans thought that the message of the cross was moronic. Why? Because they worshiped human power. And where is Rome now? Not long after Paul wrote those words, the pagan temples of Rome stood empty and desolate. 
the paint flaked off the statues. The amphitheaters were used as quarries for building supplies. The eternal city was burned to the ground. And the values of the man on the donkey transformed the world. The church of Jesus Christ is still being built. Those religious rulers in John 11 were right. The whole world has indeed gone after Christ. And all the time, century after century, millennium after millennium, the kingdoms based on power and control have imploded. Societies which worship power cannot stand because power is an idol. And idols always fall. Those on the progressive left of our own society must hear that message. Reduce everything to power and your revolution against the oppressor will burn the whole civilization to the ground. So we've thought about God's approach to government and we've considered the apparent triumph of power. But to finish, I want to think about the final triumph of truth. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 23. I'm going to read just two verses. You may have noticed that little verse at the end of Luke about the Lord weeping over Jerusalem. And here we get to hear his words. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38. The Lord says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. As the Lord Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, he weeps. His most basic instinct, his longing is to gather its people into a protective embrace. But there is this stubborn refusal on their part to accept the divine invitation. And you will have noticed the Lord describes Jerusalem in a really specific way. The city that kills the prophets. The job of a prophet was to tell the truth. They spoke truth to power. Think of Nathan the prophet confronting King David after his adultery with Bathsheba. Thou art the man, he says. Think of courageous prophets like Jeremiah who risked their lives to speak truth to the powerful elite in Jerusalem. Many of them were killed. And the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, had had his head cut off for speaking truth to power. So the Lord Jesus knows he is walking the same path that the Old Testament prophets had walked. He was entering into a power structure that would react ruthlessly to anything that threatened its stability. Christ does not come as divine power to confront human power. He comes as divine truth to confront human power. This is God's strategy. Truth will be the only thing left standing. No matter how much power you exert to convince and coerce people to believe lies, in the end, false things always implode. So only the truth is left standing. Just think of the enormous economic, cultural, and political power that is being exerted in our own society to coerce people to accept transgender ideology. Well, the Christian solution to that is to maintain the prophetic voice in the public square. We may suffer the same fate as Jeremiah, but in the end, false ideologies always rot and topple over, and only the truth is left standing. Now, the fallout may be catastrophic. Western civilization may implode, but that very crash will be a witness to the truth. The Easter story makes that point with real force. The Pharisees jettison all their beliefs. They throw away every religious conviction 
in a desperate attempt to maintain power. They end up saying that they have no king but Caesar. If that wasn't written in Scripture, you wouldn't believe it. What an example of a social elite giving up on truth just to maintain their privilege and power. They prostitute their principles in an attempt to use the Roman dragon to kill the Lord Jesus. And they succeed. The great conflict between truth and power comes in Pilate's judgment hall. Pilate appears to have all the power. But it dawns upon the reader of John's gospel that the bruised, beaten figure of Christ who stands before Pilate, he is the real judge in that scene. And Pilate knows it. He feels the sheer moral weight of Christ's embodied truth. And so he sneers, what is truth? And escapes out of the room. So in our passage, as we watch Christ weep over Jerusalem, we should see him as the ultimate prophetic voice entering into the rebel stronghold armed only with truth. And I guess my point is that we shouldn't read this story of Christ's entry into Jerusalem and reduce it to a pious thought that humble people are nice. The real message is that when, we, when truth confronts power in the long run, truth will win. Now, I'm conscious that this study has been a little bit abstract. We've had to think about some uh, difficult ideas. So I want to close by applying the story at a personal level. We can see Christ approaching Jerusalem as a metaphor for our society. But rebellious Jerusalem can also be taken as a picture of the human heart. Naturally, the human heart is enemy territory for God because sin has turned humanity into a rebel state. As Paul says in Romans 5, we were at enmity with God. So how does God approach an individual? Well, he doesn't arrive in a tank or a huge white charger. He comes quietly and humbly. He comes to win your heart, to prove to you what the donkey and the children instinctively knew already. This man means you no harm. He has your best interest at heart. He comes to bring order and stability and good governance and meaning into your troubled heart. The problem is that we have lots of little Pharisees running around inside our personalities. I'm talking directly to those of you here who may not be Christians tonight. We can become afraid, feel threatened by Christ's approach because we don't want our idols to be brought low we don't really want to hear the voice of truth. As the eminent theologian Thomas Nagel famously said, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Well, to be very serious for a moment, remember how the story played out. The Lord wept over Jerusalem because he knew that it would reject him, even after his, his resurrection. The Jews chose power over truth. They wanted a horse rather than follow a man on a donkey. They wanted to be like Mordecai in the book of Esther, being led around on a horse so they could feel important and superior. But societies that jettison truth and idolize power will always implode. Eventually, the Roman dragon they had used to kill Christ turned on them. On them. Jerusalem was raised to the ground. So no wonder our Lord wept for that city. My point is this, and it's a serious one. You aren't facing a choice between the status quo and Christ. You're facing a decision about two destinations. Either 
the idols of power and money and sex will collapse and your life will implode. Your personality will face destruction. Or else you can join that happy throng who welcome Christ into their hearts. So, why don't you spread your cloaks out before him? Make way for the king and allow him entry into your heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are conscious of the lies that people tell about your character, that you are a cosmic tyrant who wants to reduce us to sniveling slavery by the use of divine power. We thank you that that is not so. As we see the Lord Jesus enter into that citadel of power and control and manipulation, armed only with truth, we catch a glimpse of the sheer courage and wisdom of your strategy. We thank you that in the end, and we have already seen it in history, that only the truth stands. And to that end, Father, we pray for our society. We think of our cultural landscape dominated by these great idols of critical theory and expressive individualism, queer theory, transgenderism. And we pray, Lord, that these idols would fall, that they would topple and rot quickly so that a minimum number of innocents, particularly infants, would be unharmed. We pray that our society would repent and would see in Christ the gentle Savior and hear his call, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And that they would embrace a king who has their best interest at heart, who can win their hearts and minds. And so they will serve him willingly because they think he is morally worthy. And Father, we then apply that story that we have been thinking about tonight to ourselves, to our own hearts. And we pray for those in this room who perhaps are in a storm. Their lives underneath the surface are chaotic, messed up, full of turmoil, roiled with anxiety and despair and anger. We thank you, Lord, that you want to come in and establish good governance. You want to bring order and stability so that real life can begin and ordered life can be enjoyed. We pray for people in that situation, Lord, that they would come to Christ, that they would see through what he has done, they would see his goodness, his kindness, his wisdom, and that he would win their hearts and so they would willingly kneel at his feet and become his subjects in his kingdom. We thank you for our study, and uh, we return thanks in Jesus' name.